2 Timothy chapter 1. As you turn there, I want you to imagine, we're going to use our imagination this morning. Imagine yourself in this situation. Imagine you just started a new job. It's a job you've been wanting and pursuing for some time. You're, you're finally in that position. and it's a, it's a job that requires you to work closely with a team. Now, of course, you're the new person in the room. So you come in, you want to make a good impression. It's natural. We want to be liked and respected. You, you want to show that you're the, you were the right choice, that you are a good fit for this, this team, this job. So you come early. You stay late. You're doing all the things that you need to do to prove yourself. But for some reason, even though you're doing all these things, you still feel like the outsider. Seems like the rest of the team is still unsure about you and things just aren't clicking. But you keep at it. You keep doing your best, trusting that it will all work out. Then one day, all of a sudden, things start just to feel better. Things are starting to click and Overnight, you, you think, I'm finally the place where I'm seen as a peer, I'm respected for my work. And then just the big one, the, one of your coworkers is having a dinner at his home. He invites everyone, and for the first time, you're included. You're now a part of the team. You go to this dinner, and it's going well. There's a little bit of work talk, but more than anything, you're just enjoying time with these, these people. And through the, through the process of conversation, one guy starts talking about an experience he had recently. A family member had invited him to a special service at their church. He doesn't have much church background. He was surprised because in this church service where he thought he would go and be encouraged and maybe get some hope, he, he heard a lot about sin and the need for repentance. Pastor even made a comment about the fact that those who don't repent would face judgment. He didn't understand it, and he kept going on and on. He's you know, just the guy who, who makes people laugh, but at the same time, it's a little bit serious. And he, he's talking about how he can't believe that there's people who would, who would think this way. So judgmental. Who, who are these people? Who is that pastor to, to suggest what's right and what's wrong? And even to go so far as suggest to suggest that if people don't repent of what he says is wrong, then there would be judgment. So legalistic. So backwards. You're hearing this and you start to look around the table and you notice that everyone's agreeing. Heads are nodding. Yeah, I've had that experience before too. People are making comments about this idea of sin and judgment. For churches to believe things like this, it's narrow, it's judgmental, it's legalistic, it's religion trying to control people. So there you are, after this long process of getting on this team, and now fitting in on this team, and now you're there, and all of this is being said, and the question is, how do you respond? Do you say something? What do you say? I guess the question is, in that moment, do you have the courage to stand for what you believe, and for what we believe is true, or do you cower? To use the language of 2 Timothy 1, the question is, are you ashamed? 
This morning as we come back to 2 Timothy, we're coming back to this theme that we've already considered for two weeks. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, there's, there's this charge from Paul to Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of Christ. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Remember, Paul's in prison. He's soon to be put to death. He's writing to Timothy, and he's calling him to be faithful, to steward the gospel, to take the message of Christ, to guard it, to protect it, to, to pass it on. And Paul knows that if Timothy is faithful, then he too will suffer. But Paul gives Timothy this reminder. We went over this a few weeks ago. God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and self-control. Those go together, by the way. Power, love, and self-control. He tells Timothy, don't be ashamed. Be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Press on. It's the primary theme of this chapter. We've already spent two weeks hearing this charge. But before the shift that comes at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul does one more thing to encourage Timothy. He gets personal, and he begins naming names. And he reminds Timothy that there are people who they both know who when things became hard, they turned away. They abandoned Paul and presumably the gospel. But there were some who had the courage to remain faithful. I think if we put ourselves in Timothy's shoes, this would be an emotional part of the letter. It's one thing to think in theological or theoretical terms, but now Paul's naming names. Remember that when it got hard, there were people among us whom we know, and some went this way and some went another way. And so in this passage, we're going to see a negative example and a positive example. And I will tell you that I, I struggled I almost just tagged this on to the end of the last sermon. By the way, there's these examples of some who were faithful and some who weren't. That probably would have been fine. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, we probably need this reminder one more time. We need reminders to stand firm and to remain committed to the truth, even if it's contrary to the way the world would have us think. We should want to not be like those who would turn away from faithfulness because it's hard. And we need the reminder that, in fact, many will walk away. And yet we've been called to stand. So with that said, our focus this morning is going to be verses 15 to 18, but it is a part of this section that's really cohesive. So um, I'm going to go back and I'm going to read for us starting in verse 8. And then we will, again, focus in on verses 15 to 18. So I hope you'll follow along as I read. 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Hear the word of God. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, I love this, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in faith and in love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me and earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is the word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now, before we get into the text, let me say this. The aim of this text and the aim of this sermon is not necessarily to make us feel bad about the times when we've lacked boldness. We all have those times, don't we? whether it's not sharing the gospel, or maybe here's another angle we can think about this. When we know we should do something because God's called us to or told us not to, and yet we compromise. We all have times when we live inconsistent with the gospel, but the aim of this sermon is not necessarily to make us feel guilty for that. It's not a goal to make you feel shame for being ashamed. The point's bigger than that. What we have in 15 to 18 is this reminder that there are times when faithfulness is hard and that there are many who for a time are committed to Christ, but over time it becomes clear that they aren't willing to stand when things get hard. As a church, we should know that we have this calling. We have a stewardship. And it's important for us to grow in boldness to become like those who are willing to stand, even if it's hard, even if it risks reputation or social standing or safety. We all have times we could have done more, done better. The question is, where's our heart? Are we growing in love for Christ? Are we growing in our desire to be faithful with the gospel, to live consistent with the gospel? Or are we inclined, do you see this pattern in your life, to slowly drift away? Compromise, silence. It's usually a slow fade, isn't it? In this passage, we have Paul calling Timothy to not be ashamed. And if you look back at the verses we just read, he, he says, don't be ashamed, be willing to suffer, guard the good deposit. And then he gives these two examples, one negative and one positive. One of those who turned away from gospel faithfulness and another of those who remained unashamed. See this in verse 15. We start this negative example. Paul says to Timothy, you remember this, you were there, you are aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. I practiced, but it's still hard. 
And then Stephen read that genealogy this morning in Sunday school. Yeah, it's a day of names, isn't it? Remember, Timothy's a pastor at Ephesus. Ephesus was a Roman city in Asia, but when we think Asia, we think the Far East. For them, Asia, it's, it's more like modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was in Asia, and Paul's telling Timothy, there was a time, remember, when everyone, everyone there where you are, everyone in Asia, they turned away from me, they deserted me, they abandoned me, they left me alone. So look at verse 15. I've got a couple of questions. I hope when you read the Bible, you, you, you don't just read it passively, but you think, okay, I've got questions, and I hope you take time to try to, to answer those questions. My questions when I came to verse 15 were, first, what was this event that caused people to turn away? And the second question was, what did it mean that they turned away? Two questions. So first question, what, 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 what was the, the catalyst for this turning away? Remember, Paul was a, a key figure in the church, and what we know is that he was arrested. I, I think it was that arrest that was just this catalyst. To see the one who had stood as kind of the, the pillar of the church, suffering and arrested and most likely being put to death, for some, that may have been faith-shattering. Maybe for some, it was a signal that this whole thing may not be as real, may not be as stable as what he once thought, and so they pull back. It brought doubts. What Paul says is, at that point, when that happened, he felt as though everybody turned away from him. And I do think there's some hyperbole here, because in the next few verses, we're actually going to see that there were some who were faithful. But you know that feeling. No one is with me here. Paul's point is made. He had been abandoned. Now, here's the second question. The first question is, what was the catalyst? What caused people to turn away? And I think it was the event of Paul's arrest. But what does it mean that they turned away? Paul says specifically in the verse, they turned away from me. So it could simply mean that when he needed help, no one was there to help him. When he was arrested, there weren't any defenders. And I, I do think Paul at least means that. But I don't think that's all he means. Because think about the context. Paul's not just calling to me. He's not telling this story just as a side note of people stink. No, he's, he's sometimes they do. Um, he, he's telling this story as a means of calling Timothy to what? To gospel faithfulness, right? He's not just asking Timothy to be on his side or to fight his fight. No, he's calling Timothy to stand for the gospel, to, to guard and defend and to steward the gospel. And so he gives this example. When I stood for the gospel, I was unashamed, and I suffered, and everyone turned away. I think in the context, this is more than Paul just feeling alone. This is Paul pointing out that a majority of people were not willing to stand for the sake of the gospel. They turned away. Here would be question 2B. Does that mean that they left the faith? We don't know for sure. We all have times when we shrink back, but it may not be that we've, we were never saved. It is interesting to note, though, that Paul uses this word, this turning away word. He uses it two other times in the pastoral epistles. 
And it's this Greek word, apostrophe, which um, has the same root as the word that we get apostasy from. You could flip in your Bible just over to chapter 4. Paul says there in chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away. It's that same word. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and will wander into myths. So this turning away. And the same thing in Titus chapter 1. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. The point is, I think this turning away that Paul's talking about, it's bigger than just that he feels rejected himself. No, he represents something bigger. And for people to turn away from Paul is, in fact, to some extent, to turn away from gospel faithfulness. I think it's important for us to remember we have to know that there will be times and there will be people who we never imagined would turn away. That will. People we thought would be faithful till the end who will abandon their loyalty to Christ. And maybe this has happened to you. And it could be one of the hardest things that many Christians face to see someone who they thought would be faithful to the end who turns away. It can be devastating, and if we're not careful, it could shatter our own faith. But I think passages like this are helpful because they remind us that this is, in fact, a reality, that there are some who will not prove to be faithful. And sometimes it may be those we least expect. And I think we see that even in, in verse 15. That Paul's not just talking about this fringe, generic group of people. You remember all those people that used to come to church? Now none of those people are there. It's not just this big, generic crowd, but he, he mentions some people in particular. Phygelus and Hermogenes. And I think the fact that Paul calls out these two men means these are people he knew and most likely leaders in the church, people who he expected would remain faithful. But when the heat came, they were gone. And, and we don't know what their final story is. But we do know for at least this time, they were not faithful. And we see this story in the scriptures. As I, as I read this passage this week, I just kept thinking about Peter. You know the story. Jesus under arrest and under examination. Someone sees Peter out in the courtyard. And you're, you're one of his disciples. And Peter says, no, I'm not. And three times he denies having any kind of a relationship with Christ. In fact, the third time he says, I, I don't even know who he is. Of course, the story of Peter is a sobering reminder that even those who are closest to Jesus may be tempted to shrink back. And we should take these examples to heart. We should recognize the example in Timothy 
this time when a majority of people pulled back. And this is why Paul's writing to Timothy. He's writing to Timothy to say, we need people who will stand. We need people who won't be ashamed, who will be willing to suffer. The gospel is glorious. The gospel is our hope. Don't be ashamed. Guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. Don't be like so many who turn away. Remember the words of Jesus. This is in Luke 9. He says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, to gain the whole world, but to forfeit his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It's an important passage. It's easy to be distracted, isn't it? It can be easy to get so consumed with the stuff of life, sometimes really, really good things. We can get so focused on what we have and what we want, and we can think too little about what really matters. And we may, in the sense of our lives and what we would want, gain everything. But forget what's most significant. So the point is to recognize the call of Jesus to give ourselves fully to him. Paul says to Timothy, don't be ashamed. In verse 15, we have this example of all of these who turned away. But then we have an example in 16 to 18 of of at least one man who was faithful. When when, When they write the story, we want to be in the second category, right? We want to find ourselves in verses 16 to 18. Look at it again. He says, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anosiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So in 15, all turned away, but now there were some, at least one, who was faithful. We don't read about Anesiphorus anywhere else in the Scripture. I had hoped there was like a whole paragraph in Acts about him or something like that. No, we don't find out anything else about this man anywhere else. But we actually have quite a bit in these verses. Let's start with this. In verse 17, Paul says that when he arrived in Rome, when Onesiphorus arrives in Rome, he, he searched diligently or earnestly to find Paul. What's that about? Most likely a reference to the fact that Paul's in prison and the place where he's being held was not well known. But Onesiphorus cares for Paul and he goes to Rome determined to find out where Paul is. And for a specific reason. Here's why. Prisons at this time weren't like prisons now. Um, There weren't three meals a day. There wasn't a provision of clothes and all the things you would need. Prisoners in Rome counted on friends and family to, to bring them things, to bring them food, to bring them what they would need for survival in the prison. And if they died in prison, okay. You know, that didn't matter a whole lot to Rome. But, but people would support you know, in Hebrews, it we're told, or the, the believers were told to support those in prison. And, and that's what's going on here. Anesiphorus goes to Rome 
He's not sure where Paul is, but he, he searches and he searches to find him. Which is significant in itself because Rome was not a safe place for Christians. Paul's on the most wanted list, and, and here's Onesiphorus Four saying, hey, have you seen Paul? I'm looking for this known criminal. He's a friend of mine. Probably not the safest thing to do. But he goes and he looks, and, and what we see here is Paul says, he was not ashamed of my chains. Think about how this contrasts with the people in verse 15. When they sensed danger, when they realized Paul was going to be killed, they took off. But now here's this faithful brother, and he's not ashamed of Paul's imprisonment, which I think could be expanded to say he's not ashamed of the reason why Paul's in prison. Back in verse 4, Paul tells Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. He puts these things together. Don't be ashamed of Christ. Don't be ashamed of me as I represent Christ. So when Paul says that Onesiphorus is not ashamed of his chains, I read into this, Onesiphorus is not ashamed of the gospel. No doubt his association with Paul could lead to his own suffering, but he's not ashamed. To go back to where we started, most of us are tempted at times to shrink back in far less serious situations. Think back to the dinner I described and ask, how bold would I be in that situation? And I think there's nuance. There's ways we can handle that, right? but would you take that risk of losing social standing, of losing reputation? What do you do with the fear of man or pride that would, would try to hold you back? And I hope you recognize that there is nothing more significant than faithfulness to Christ. And faithfulness to Christ, church, is not always easy. And I think this passage, you know, we... we, we, we it's easy to think that this is all about evangelism, and I'll, that's a big part of it. But it's also about being willing to live in ways that are consistent with the gospel, right? To believe what the scriptures say. You may not actually be at a dinner where someone talks about a preacher calling for repentance, but you may be at a dinner where social issues come up, right? Right? The question is, are we ashamed of what the Bible says, what God says is true? Or will we get on that slow fade? We have in this whole, whole text is a reminder that we've been entrusted with the gospel. To go back to verse 10, we've been entrusted with the news of the one who has abolished death and brought life and immortality. In the gospel, we have the hope of eternal life, and this is a message that we must share and proclaim no matter the cost to our reputation or our social standing or our safety. Vanessa Forrest is an example of gospel faithfulness. He goes and he searches for Paul. He's not ashamed of Paul's chains. He's not ashamed of the gospel. And then Paul says, he refreshed me. What does that mean, that he refreshed Paul? Well, it's probably, at minimum, a reference to what I said earlier, that he went and cared for Paul physically. He, he probably brought him food, brought him clothes, gave him the necessities that he needed for survival there in that prison. 
But I do think it's more than that. I think Paul's talking about more than physical provision. I think when Paul says that Onesiphorus refreshed him, this is probably even primarily a reference to the fact that he was a loyal friend and a faithful companion in Christ. Everyone in Asia has turned away from me, but Onesiphorus came and he refreshed me. I'd been abandoned and deserted by everyone, but this faithful brother, he was there. And he had to search hard for me. He looked everywhere. He wasn't ashamed of my chains. He came to me, and I was refreshed. It also says in the verse that he did it often. We get the impression that Onesiphorus didn't just swing by once for a little visit, but that, that he was regularly coming to see Paul and to encourage him. Let me just say this as a side note. When it comes to standing firm for the sake of the gospel, we need one another. We all need people like Onesiphorus in our lives. And the people around you need you to be like Onesiphorus for them. When we're standing firm to share the gospel, to live the gospel, to be gospel people in an anti-gospel world, we need others who will stand by us and say, keep going, right? It's true. One of the big benefits of us being together on Sundays is to hear other people singing true things and to know that, yes, I'm not alone. We believe this. It can feel lonely, can't it? To go into a workplace where no one else believes in Christ, where no one else has the same hope that we have, but we come together by God's design and we are a Nessa forest for one another, right? Refreshing one another. That's what's supposed to be happening here. It's why tonight, even on Super Bowl Sunday, I'm going to encourage you men to come. Let's pray together. We're going to do it at 4 o'clock instead of 5 because football. But we still want to come together, right? Why? Because we need one another. We need this encouragement. We need those who will refresh us because some of you have had a hard month. We need this encouragement. Paul was encouraged by his friend. So what do we know about this guy? He, he searched high and low for Paul. He was not ashamed of the gospel. He was a good, loyal gospel friend. We also see that he was a, a good churchman. And that's what Paul means, I believe, when he says, you know well all the service he rendered at, rendered at Ephesus. Paul spent several years in Ephesus. I think Nesiphorus was one of those faithful brothers who was at the church, served the church well. Paul knew him. Timothy knew him. And, and, and Paul's just saying, do you remember how much that guy did? Every church has that guy, right? Who just does so much for the good of the church. Paul's thankful for this brother. Most significantly that when others turned away, he was there, faithful even when it was risky. I think it's fair to say that he was doing things that Paul was calling Timothy to do. Don't be ashamed. Don't be fearful. Be willing to suffer. And Paul holds him up as an example. The other aspect of this testimony is the fact that Paul prays for mercy, both on Onesiphorus' family and then him. And that kind of brackets the whole section. 
there's a lot of speculation about what Paul's doing here. Some have suggested that, that Onesiphorus is dead, that he's already passed. And so at the beginning, he prays for those who have been left behind. He prays for the family. And then at the end, he prays for Onesiphorus and the coming judgment of Christ. It's possible that he has passed at this point, but I don't think we know that enough to build our understanding of the text on it. I think what we do see here, and we see the same pattern in passages in the Old Testament, the same kind of prayer, and really, it's a prayer of blessing. It's, he's asking for mercy, and when we think mercy, we usually think mercy from, for forgiveness, mercy from judgment for God, but it could be used more generally, just Paul wants God to show kindness and blessing and favor to this family because of the faithfulness of his friend. And then in verse 18, he has a similar request for Onesiphorus himself. May the Lord grant him to find mercy on the Lord's day. Let me just say, um, there are some in other church traditions who will say, we should pray for the dead, and they'll come to this passage. Because here's Onesiphorus, they're going to assume that he has passed, and that Paul is praying that he will receive mercy on the day of the Lord. And so there's this whole theology of built around we should pray for those who are dead, praying that God will be merciful to them. And um, let me just say that's a, it's a poor use of this text, and there's nothing else in Scripture that would substantiate um, that. We, we interpret Scripture by Scripture. Um, we can't get there from here. But of course, that leaves the question, what does Paul mean? And why is he praying that God would, would even bless or show favor to an Esophorus on that day? And I believe this is a reference to the fact that we all will stand before Christ. And not to be judged for our sins. If we're in him, we are forgiven of our sins. But the scriptures tell us we will all stand before him and be rewarded for the good things that we've done. You can read about it in um, 1 Corinthians 3 and in Matthew 25. Our good deeds will be seen by God. And I think this is Paul's prayer. God, would you bless this faithful brother? On that day, would you honor him for the good that he has done? I think what we also have here is a reminder for all of us that we will, in fact, stand before Christ. As we think about that day and what will matter to us on that day, it should drive us to faithfulness. As we think about standing before our Maker and our Savior, we should long to be faithful today. It can be easy to shift into neutral, can't it? It can be easy to live our lives thinking a lot about the reputation we have or our social standing or our careers or good things like our families. And we can forget that our primary calling is to be stewards of the gospel of God, living in a way that's consistent with the gospel, speaking in a way that's consistent with the gospel, ready to give a defense, eager to share. But there is that, that temptation to fear. We can go back to where we started a couple weeks ago. Paul tells Timothy at the very beginning, God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of self-control. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. This is our hope and this is our message, that we have a God who saves sinners. We're sinners. 
We need a Savior. Christ is that Savior. The sermon's primarily been directed towards those of us who are Christians. It's important for us to remember what we believe, and perhaps there would be someone here this morning who's not yet in that category, and I would want you to know what we believe. Maybe if you were at that dinner I described, you would have the courage to say something like this. And I do believe that every person is born as a sinner and an enemy before God. And I believe that because of our sin, we all deserve the wrath of God. So if we die without being forgiven, if we die without our sins being cared for, there is eternal punishment. But friends, I also believe that God is merciful and gracious, and that he has made a way for sinners like me to be forgiven. In his love, he sent his son, born of a virgin, who, who lived a perfect life. He was crucified by sinful men, but his death was by God's design. He died, and when he died, he, he paid the price for sin. He rose again, defeating death. This is why I believe that we can live forever. Because Christ has defeated death, and that's available to anyone who will repent of their sins and trust him. It's because of what Christ did that you can be saved from God's wrath and granted eternal life and eternal joy. This is my hope. Friends, that's a message you know and you could articulate, I trust. But this is the message that we have been called to live consistent with. Because... To believe that we are forgiven from our sins by the death of Christ means we no longer live the way we used to live, right? We're not who we were. And so we live different than that. We're unashamed. And yes, our reputation may be affected and our social standing may take a hit. We may suffer loss, but this is the call. Be faithful. And so I've prayed for you this week that if verses 15 to 18 were written of us, that you would be in the second half of that passage. I'll end this way with a passage we will get to eventually, if the Lord wills. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing in kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. As for you, church, be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Let's pray.